Good morning again. So this week is going to be a little bit different from how I normally approach a text. The way, what we do when we gather here, if you, it's your first time with us, is we go through a book of the Bible and we're going through the gospel of Mark. And we go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But this week we're at an incredibly difficult passage because it is about that glorious day. It is about things still to come. And you could ask five different pastors or five different Bible scholars to explain to you what they thought the passage we're going to look at today means, and you'd probably get at least 10 different answers. And I can speak with firsthand experience about that because as I prepared this week, that's exactly what I found as I looked at material. And after spending all that time there, it would be very dishonest of me to stand up here and tell you, I know exactly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what everything in the passage we're going to read to today means. I know what all of this is about. In fact, I feel it's somewhat arrogant, it's somewhat presumptuous to say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know what every single verse in this text means and what every detail refers to. I feel when we approach this topic in a passage like this, we need to do so with humility, with a willingness to admit that maybe we don't quite know everything or understand everything. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to focus on the big picture, the main points. We're actually going to spend two weeks looking at this chapter. This first week, we're going to do kind of a high flyby. Next week, we'll go a little bit closer to the ground, but I'm not going to spend time diving into every single detail in this chapter. We could spend hours, weeks talking about every possible interpretation or understanding of the verses we're going to look at. But instead, we're going to focus on the big picture. Does that make sense? Now, before I do that, though, I do want to remind us of one thing. I want to remind us of what unites us together. Perhaps you're visiting with us, but here as a church, we're united together by our faith in Jesus Christ, by our commitment to one another, and also we hold to a similar statement of faith, a statement of beliefs. Pastor Tom mentioned I started teaching a class about that on Wednesday nights, and we just had the first week, so it's not too late to jump in. But I want to direct your attention to what that statement of faith says when it talks about the last things. This is Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It says, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally, visibly, glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The statement goes on to talk about heaven and hell, but when we look at last things, that's it. That's what our statement of faith says about, it highlights God's control. It highlights that Jesus will return. And what I like about that statement of faith is it means there's room in our church for differences of opinion about the how and the when of how all that comes together. The reason I'm making that point is because there will probably be some time over the next two weeks where I may say something that you disagree with. Think, I, I don't think that's true, Pastor John. That's not how I would understand that particular point there. But I want to highlight that this is what we agree to together. We may agree about the details, but they're just that. They're the details. They're not things that should divide us as a church. If we have a different understanding, that's okay. My goal is to encourage all of us from God's word. 
I don't want us to get lost arguing about the little details. Now, if there's something I say you have questions about, please reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk to you as long as it's your questions, things you're thinking about. What I don't want to do is I don't want you to send me emails. Such and such pastor said this, but you said that. I'm I'm not going to spend time doing that. I could spend forever arguing with other pastors who I'll never meet and never have anything to do with. But if there's a genuine question you have, I'd be happy to talk to you about that because my goal is for all of us, those of us here in this room, to grow closer to the Lord. So let me pray, and then we'll start looking at this passage. God, as we approach this text, I pray that you would humble our hearts before you. God, help us to see the big picture here. The, the main central truth that Jesus is coming back again. And that our response to that is to be on guard against our own fear, against deception, against those who would mislead us, and to stay awake, to look for, long for your return. May you unite us around those truths so that we may fall more in love with you, Jesus, that we may grow closer to you each and every day. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so let's talk for a minute about where we are here in the Bible and the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark's Gospel. This is chapter 13. These are some of Jesus' final days before his crucifixion. The story we're talking about, the, the speech that Jesus gives, the sermon, it's also in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. But here in Mark, it serves as a bridge between what's come before and what's come after. If you've been here the past couple weeks, we've spent time in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, Jesus has been pointing out the failures of the Israelites, of the the Jews, of their religious system, the failures of their leaders to point people toward God. He's had a lot of discussion and debate about what it really means to follow God and know him. That's where we were. Where we're going after this chapter are Jesus's very last days his death, his burial, his resurrection, the glory that is coming to Jesus. So while the last chapter was about the failure of the people, the chapters to come are about the glory of Christ. And this chapter has both of those, failure and the judgment that comes from it, but the glory of Christ that also is to come. The main thing that's happening in this chapter in terms of the context is Jesus is predicting that the Jews' temple would be destroyed. And Jesus is probably saying this sometime around the year 30, 33 AD, and less than 40 years in 70 AD, that's exactly what would happen. Perhaps that's close to, maybe uh, that happened just after Mark wrote this book. But the big debate about this chapter is how much of what Jesus is saying is about that event, the temple being destroyed, and how much is about the future, things still to come. And everyone goes back and forth about what refers to what and how much things tie together and and all of that. Uh, The approach that I'll give going through it is kind of a both-and approach. That uh, is how I often approach prophecy in the Old Testament. The illustration I use to communicate this is thinking about a mountain range. Have you ever seen a mountain range? If you look at it in one sense, you could say all those mountains are together. But we know in our heads that Yes, the mountains may look like they're together, but it could be miles and miles and miles between each one. So something could be presented in one picture, but it could actually be separated by a long time. 
The New Testament takes the concepts of Christ coming, his life, death, his resurrection, him ascending to heaven, and his future reign and rule. It views all of those as the last days. And so as we look at this chapter, I understand most of it, a lot of it, to be referring to that event when the temple was destroyed, but it's also pointing ahead to a distant future judgment. Now, my goal coming in here, I I wanted to read the chapter, you can see how it tied together. But in the interest of time, I'm going to highlight the verses that I'm going to spend time on today. So as I read, who's ever doing the slides back there, I'll jump ahead and I'll tell you where I'm going. But for right now, let's turn, if you're not there, to Mark chapter 13. I'm not going to ask you to stand like I normally do because it it is a longer chapter of scripture. So we'll start in verse 1. Mark 13 verse 1 says this, and as he, Jesus, came out of the temple One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains, but be on your guard. Could you jump back to verse 21, verse 21? And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Verse 26, why don't we jump now to verse 32, verse 32 says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Verse 36, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. 
And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. The reason I chose those verses is because I feel they bring out some of the main themes of the passage. And you might have noticed I spent some time at the beginning of the chapter and at the end, which I think is appropriate because as we've been going through Mark, oftentimes he does what scholars very intellectually call a Mark sandwich. He'll start something, a story or event, then there'll be something in the middle, and then he'll go to that same story at the end. So today we're looking at the beginning and the end. Next week we'll get more into the middle. And what do we see at the beginning and the end? What is Jesus telling us, his followers? Well, the first thing he tells us is that followers of Jesus are to be on guard. Followers of Jesus are to be on guard, on guard. In this passage, we read about Jesus leaving the temple. All the debates he's been having with the religious leaders were in the temple, and now he's walking out. The disciples think it's just for the day, but it will actually be the last time Jesus is in the temple while he is on earth. And since that temple would be destroyed, it was his last time ever being in that temple. As they leave, one disciple, though, looks back at this huge, marvelous building, and he says to Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful impressive, massive stones, and what wonderful, magnificent buildings are here in this temple. Aren't we great that we have such a wonderful temple? And it must have been impressive to look at. Accounts of the day talk about it, how it shined like the sun. It was two times the size of the original temple. Even the location is awe-inspiring today. This is a picture from the Mount of Olives where Jesus will give this speech looking at where the temple would be. Now, the golden building you see there is, uh, is an Islamic structure, but that's roughly where the temple would have been. You would be up on the mountain and see this huge temple right there. It would have been an impressive sight. But Jesus' response is not what the disciple expects. Jesus says to him that these great buildings will not be left here one stone upon another. They will be thrown down and completely destroyed and demolished. He's just been in the temple, and he's told the leaders there that they have failed to rightly represent God, and this is the consequence of their failure. The temple would be destroyed. Not one stone would be left. And when the temple was destroyed 40 years later, it would have looked like the whole thing had been taken down and thrown down. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talks about this as well. He says, days will come upon you, Jerusalem, the temple, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They'll surround you, hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you, they will not leave one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. They did not know when the Messiah had come to them. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus is God. He knows the future. This symbol of the, their strength and power of God's favor on the people of Israel, it would collapse because a beautiful building does not mean that one has God's favor. Why did it happen? Well, because the leaders failed. We discussed that in the last chapter. They repeatedly failed. They lived for themselves, not for God. And this is the consequence. But this also happened because something greater than the temple was there. The temple could not ultimately save. The sacrifices that happened there did not fully make people right with God. 
As the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10:4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And when Jesus came through his death, burial, and resurrection, he gave his people something much better than the temple. But for now, they're talking about the temple. And in verse 3, Jesus sits on that mountain with that view from that picture I showed you, looking at the temple. And four of his disciples, the inner four, Peter, James, John, and Peter's brother, Andrew, they approach him because Jesus is often more clear about things in private. And they ask him two questions. They say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign that these things are going to be accomplished? When is this going to happen? How will we know that it is about to happen? The reason they ask this is because what Jesus is saying is shocking to them. They grew up as as Jews in Israel. The temple was the center of their whole nation. It was unimaginable to them that the temple would be torn down. And if that was going to happen, they assumed that must be the end of the world. That's the only time that something as terrible as that could happen. But Jesus has a different perspective. He seems to view that destruction of the temple as a type, something previewing, looking ahead to a final judgment. And so in verse 5, he enters Sorry, I hear my mic cutting out. Uh, He enters this address, and his first instruction to them is they should be on guard, especially against their own fear. Be on guard against fear. Be on guard against fear. I would say for us to understand, apply this passage, we shouldn't just view it as looking at some distant future events, but as a challenge for each and every disciple and follower of Jesus today. Many of the things he talks about characterize every age. They're not signs of an imminent end. And Jesus makes that clear. He says to them in verse 5, see to it that no one leads you astray. Some would use these events as false signs, but they should not be led or stray or deceived. Rather, they're to be on guard. The Apostle Paul would say something similar. He said, see to it that no one takes you captive by things like philosophy or deceit. We're not to be captive to ideas of people, we're to be captive to Christ. And Jesus is showing care and concern for his disciples. They want to know when, how will we know, how will we see this? And his response reveals that this is a weakness of theirs. He sees, you guys want to know all the answers, but your desire to know answers leaves you open to being deceived by others. The same thing can happen to us. If we're anxious, excited about what's the sign of the end, when does us open to being deceived? As he says in verse 6, there will be many who will come. They will say, I am he, I am the Savior. They will lead many astray. Perhaps he's referring to false Christ or antichrist, those who claim to be the Messiah. But regardless of the specific thing Jesus has in mind here, there will always be those who try to deceive, lead astray, professed believers, followers of Jesus. So his followers are to be on guard, prepared for those who would try to deceive them about the end. In the same way, in verse 7, he says, wars or rumors, threats of wars should not cause alarm and panic. These things will happen. We will not arrive at perfect peace until Christ returns. Look what he says in the end of verse 7. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. God is sovereign in control of all things, even those that seem dramatic or intense. 
So we should not be manipulated by those who point to things like that and say, see, we're coming on the end right now. Paul would write the same thing to believers. He says in the book of 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus, our being gathered to him, concerning the end, we ask you, brothers and sisters, do not be shaken in mind, do not be alarmed by spirit, spoken word, a letter to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. There were people writing to them saying, the day of the Lord's already come, you missed it. Paul says, no, no, everything is okay. Calm down, take a breath. It hasn't come. Jesus is saying something similar to his disciples. There may be wars, rumors of wars. The end is not yet. He's trying to prepare them that, yes, you may see the temple destroyed. There may be persecution. There may be hardship. It shouldn't alarm you. You should expect conflict and hardship. The end is not yet. It is still to come. Verse 8 adds more to this. It speaks about uh, more wars and earthquakes, famines, images of God's judgment, times of suffering and sorrow. It uses the illustration of birth pains. When a woman's in labor, the birth pains typically increase in duration, frequency as the birth gets closer. This is a biblical picture of suffering. It's throughout the Old Testament, but there's also hope in it because the hope is that suffering will end and that pain will be worth it. Paul uses this image in the book of Romans. He says, you know that the whole creation has been groaning together. All the suffering we see in the world is part of pains of childbirth, he calls it. We ourselves groan inwardly. We're waiting to be fully adopted by God, to be with God. The redemption of our bodies, to be fully saved and with him. And so at the beginning of verse 9, Jesus ends this part by telling them again to be on your be on your guard again. Brothers and sisters, I think Christ is communicating to us that we should not be deceived or anxious about the end. And we should expect false teaching, people trying to deceive, manipulate us. We should expect rumors of wars, persecution, hardship. We should expect natural disasters. These things should not alarm us. They should not cause us to lose faith. Many people use things like that to try to manipulate us, to engage us. The internet is built on engaging your attention, your emotions like fear and anger. I remember a couple years ago, I was, of all the news networks, or at least the ones I were looking at, were very, very convinced that nuclear war with North Korea was imminent. And it was every day was, here's the signs that it's coming there. Now it's often more toward Russia. Oh, war is coming. It, it, something's happening there. But it is okay even if something like that would happen, even if things seem to go wrong, God is still in control. We can hope in him and be on guard against our own fear. And this isn't the only time Jesus talks about it. He turns to it in the middle of the passage, but this time it's with a warning to be on guard against false saviors. Be on guard against false saviors, false messiahs, false rescuers. Our passage in other places, especially we'll get to it in verse 26, makes it clear that when Jesus returns, it will be obvious and clear. But some people try to take advantage of that. In Luke 17, Jesus talks about these people. It says, they will say to you, look here or, or look there. But Jesus says, do not go out or follow them. 
For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. If you do not see Jesus, then he has not come back. Look what he says in verses 21 and 22. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise, they'll perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, those who know God. Times of suffering give rise to these people who try to manipulate followers of God, but we should be on guard against them. Even if they do something that seems miraculous, a sign or a wonder, they may be very persuasive. Some could be led away, but signs and wonders, great deeds, they don't indicate to us that this person is approved by God. Seeing something amazing doesn't Someone has a close relationship with God. They are not absolute proof. God has talked about this throughout his word. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, there's an interesting case where it talks about if somebody comes and does a great sign or a wonder, something that really impresses you, and then says, we should not do what God says, we should do something else. This is what the Old Testament said. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Someone who does miracles, does something impressive, that does not prove they know God. Only Scripture, God's Word, is fully reliable. And if we rest on anything else, that's dangerous. The Apostle John would later write, Children, it's the last hour. As you've heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, so we know it's the last hour. What did they do? They went out from us. They left the faith. They were not of us. If they were, they would have continued, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Maybe someone close to us, maybe someone we like or respect, but if they leave the faith, they are not a representative of God. And so verse 23 in our passage, Jesus has another warning to be on guard. And look how strongly he adds it. He says, I have told you all things beforehand. You need to be on guard. Friends, there may be those who use fears about the end to try to manipulate you, to lead you to do something or believe something. But Jesus has prepared us for this. We should especially be on guard against people who say the world's coming to the end. Life as you know it is about to end. Often people who do that are seeking something for themselves, maybe power or money or influence. Those who play on the fear of man should not be followed. We should follow those who encourage us to trust in a good God. And in the same way, we shouldn't be misled by our own false hopes. Jesus and Jesus alone is our hope. Not another person, not a leader, not a politician, but Jesus alone. I'm sure in the time Jesus is talking about, there were those who were misled by their hopes. There were Jews who cared about the temple and thought, I'm serving God, defending the temple, but they were wiped out with the Romans as well when they destroyed the temple. We should not let a hope for the future that we have, that God doesn't have, deceive us or lead us away from the task we have been called to. God has called his people to share the good news, to tell others about Jesus, what he has done, 
that he died, he buried, he was rose again so that we can have new life in him. That is to be our focus, building God's kingdom, not our own. Persecution and difficulty may come, but we have a mission telling people about Jesus. Our hope is not in saving this country, but in the coming kingdom of our Lord and Savior. So we should be on guard, but we should also stay awake. Jesus' message is we should be on guard and stay awake. And by stay awake, what I mean, I outline, is be prepared for his return. By stay awake, which is the words he uses in our text, awake or alert, I mean be prepared for his return. God is the only one who knows when Jesus is coming back, so we are to stay awake. Verse 32 tells us, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus makes it very clear, no one else knows, so it's foolish for us to speculate about it, to try to figure it out. Instead, we are to wait for it. He says it here. He even said it after he rose from the grave. In the book of Acts, the disciples come together with Jesus in Acts chapter 1, and they ask him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this it? Is this the end? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. Knowing exactly when Jesus is coming back is not something for us. It's not something for us to know. Now you may ask, why? Why can't we know? Why can't we know when he's coming back? Well, I, I can't really answer that. Maybe it would be because if believers in the past knew how far off Jesus' return was, it would discourage them. I don't know. But regardless, it is very foolish, very short-sighted to insist, no, I know for a fact the world is going to end in my lifetime. And it's even more foolish to make decisions about that. I'm going to pick a date. Jesus is coming back. I'm going to sell everything because I know he's coming back then. That type of question is not helpful. Again, it distracts us from what we've been called to. We've been called to tell others about Jesus, to do his work here and now. Now, I'll grant, maybe things that are happening in the world, maybe they're a sign that the end is just about to come, that it's here. Maybe it is. But also, maybe it isn't. We don't know. All throughout church history, you can go back and read about believers. There have always been people convinced that their generation was the last one, that it was just about to end. And they were all proven foolish because they died and things continue. I really believe it's some of the heights of arrogance to say, you know, I figured it out. I know when Jesus is coming. When he explicitly says, no one knows. Now you can ignore Jesus, and guess what? You can fill a lot of your time trying to figure that out. If you're good at communicating, you can make a lot of money telling people that you've figured it out. You know when it's happening. And I grew up in the church. I've heard things like this over and over again. There was a lot of stuff when it was Y2K, the year 2000. Maybe are there. Remember that? Or 2012, 2012, the Mayan calendar's ending. This is the stuff that it's coming there. I've heard things about getting stuff ready for a temple or blood moons. All of this stuff is embarrassing. We, we shouldn't spend time on it. If for no other reason than it has a damaging effect on those who come after us, 
Those who are young see when prophecies don't come true, and then they, lose, they can lose faith in God. I can give you uh, an example. I remember, this was about 20 years ago, there was somebody standing right here, a guest speaker, who did not say, but very strongly implied that because of some red heifer or something, the end was coming in three to five years. I remember Thursday, a person standing up here saying that. But guess what? It's 20 years later, and that still wasn't there. I, not because of my own, great, own strength, but because of God's grace that didn't shake my faith, but that could shake someone's faith if they really believe those things. Jesus is clear in our passage. No one knows. The other authors say the same thing. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It doesn't mean, oh, so it's going to be at night. No, it means you won't know. It will be unexpected. You will be surprised. Instead, when we look to the future, we should long for Christ's return. We shouldn't be dogmatic, insist that we know how and when this is going to happen. The last few verses of our passage build on this to make the main point of the chapter. In verses 33 through 37, there's repeated variations of this warning to stay on guard, to be alert or awake, to watch out, to take heed. The whole reason Jesus gave this speech, this message, this sermon was to prepare his disciples to be on guard. Do you remember what they asked him at the beginning? They said, when is this going to happen? How will you know? Jesus' response, no one knows when it's going to happen. You won't really know when it's coming there. Now, he talks about some things that, that will be there that, so we don't get discouraged, but his message is you won't know. His followers are to be perpetually ready while continuing in the responsibilities that God has given them. He will return suddenly. They're to be vigilant until he comes. Not panicked, not fearful, but stay awake and alert, and do what they're supposed to be doing. He gives an example in verses 34 and 35 of a master coming back from a journey. He says Jesus could return at any time as well. Near the end of verse 35, he gives examples of those times. He says perhaps it will be at evening or at midnight. He uses a phrase, when the rooster crows, that's like around 3 a.m., or perhaps first thing in the morning. We do not know so we should stay prepared for him and continue the work he has called us to. While we breathe on this earth, there's always something we can do for him. There's other parables in scripture Jesus uses of a master returning, but they all have this same point. One in Luke 12, Luke 12, 40 puts it this way. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And again, believers have understood this. Believers has grasped, okay, so I shouldn't spend time trying to figure it out. I should just continue living for the Lord. The Protestant reformer John Calvin was once challenged, why are you doing so much for God? And his response was, would you have my master find me idle? Would you have Jesus find me being lazy instead of living for him? We don't know when it will be, but we can have confidence that he will return. As he says in verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, to everyone, stay awake, watch, stay awake and alert, watch for his return. 
That doesn't mean we should go outside after the service and literally stare up into the sky. That's, that's not what he means there. It doesn't mean that we should stay awake at all hours of the night and not sleep. When, when I hear something like that, it reminds me of if you've ever been over to Ephrata in uh, Lancaster County. In Ephrata, there's a place called the Ephrata Cloister where there was a religious group is a generous word. It was a cult that was there. And one of their beliefs was they took our passage about verse 35, those times very seriously. So they would have a service every evening. They would have a service at midnight. They'd have a service at 2 or 3 a.m. And they'd have a service first thing in the morning because Jesus said, you don't know if it's going to be evening, midnight, in the rooster crows, or in the morning. That's not what Jesus means when he says, stay awake. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, he's urging us, we shouldn't be complacent, just content with our life here, but instead look to the reality that he is coming back. We shouldn't waste time speculating, but we should live for the Lord and be ready. Again, Paul says the same thing. He says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, when we come back to this text next week, we're going to spend some time looking at some other aspects of it there, but I don't want us to miss these main application points of being on guard and staying awake. And it's important we emphasize that because it's so easy for God's people to become lax, to fail in both of those areas. And I know this because in literally the next chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we will see the disciples fail in both of these areas. Jesus brings the disciples with him into a garden, and he asks them to pray, to do a task, to pray and encourage him. And what do they do? They fall asleep. Mark 14, 37 and 38 says, Jesus came, he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But he acknowledges, I know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this isn't Peter's only failure, because then after that, Jesus will be arrested, Peter will deny him, and the event that happens to clue Peter in on that is a rooster crowing, just like Jesus talked about in this passage here. It's extremely hard to be on guard against deception, to stay awake and ready for Christ's return, and we cannot do it if we miss the main point of our passage. I've talked about the main application today, be on guard, stay awake. But the main point of our passage is that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. We can be on guard. We can stay awake because Jesus is coming back. The whole New Testament celebrates this truth. I read that every book of the New Testament, except the very tiny third John, All the rest of them talk about Christ's return. It is something that is going to happen. God's promises will be fulfilled. There will be judgment and destruction of the enemy and unbelievers, but joy for God's people. We'll be gathered to glory. Our inheritance God has prepared for us. We'll see a renewed, transformed creation. We will see God. And this return will be different. Unlike Jesus' first time coming when he was born as a little baby in a remote stable, this time he will come as a king. Look at verse 26. It says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Everyone will see him coming. He will return to save his people. It's not the only time this is brought up. 
When Jesus ascends into heaven, there's a humorous episode that happens. So Jesus goes up into heaven, and in Acts chapter 1, it says the disciples were gazing into heaven as he went. And two men, two angels, stood by them in white robes and said, What are you doing? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come the same way that you saw him go into heaven. The book of Revelation puts it this way, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. He will return, all will see, he will be known and recognized. Jesus is who he says he is and all the world will see it. Jesus, our friend, our master, our king, he will be back soon. What does that mean for us today? It means that the world will not always continue the way it is now. Life will not go on the way it always goes on. There will be an ending. Some people talk about time or life as it's a series of circles and and nothing ever really changes. And there are things like history repeating itself, sure. But in God's design, time has a purpose. It has a plot. It's not random. It's moving towards an ending. And so you don't have forever to make up your mind about who Jesus is. You don't have forever to decide to come to him and know him before it will be too late before either he comes or your life ends. What he calls you to do is to repent, turn away from what you do, and instead believe and trust in him, to make a decision for him, to come to know him. For believers, we've been encouraged here that we shouldn't speculate about when he is returning, but prayerfully wait for his return by being on guard against deception, by being awake and ready For his return. What we're told to do instead is to long for Christ's return. That's what the early church did. They didn't view the future with fear. They didn't look at events around them and say, oh no, the end's coming now. No, they they looked forward with hope. Look at these two passages. In Titus, this is Paul writing to his friend Titus, he says that believers are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation ends with Jesus testifying to these things and saying, surely I am coming soon. And John, who's writing the book, says, amen, come Lord Jesus. They looked to him, they longed to him, for him. They were ready for him because they knew that he was worthy.